0: Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings" with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the book of Samuel. This series is in partnership with the Koran Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our party's podcast on Sefer Shemuel. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem. Last time we read chapter twenty of Shmuel Bet, that spoke about the rebellion of Sheva ben Bichri. Sheva ben Bichri revolted against the king, rebelled against the king in the aftermath of David's triumph over Avshalom. Even as stability was being reintroduced to the story, Sheva ben Bichri rallied Israelite tribes around him, and once again attempted to overthrow David. This time, it is David's men, especially Avishai ben Siruya and his brother Yoav, that hunt down Sheva ben Bichri and eventually he is killed and all threats to David's kingdom are now defeated. Chapter 20 ended with David restored to the throne and with a list of his major aides and ministers in the court. A sure sign that the that the kingdom was once again on firm ground, with the end of Sheva Ben Bichri's rebellion, the entire unit stretching from chapter thirteen through chapter twenty came to an end. The final section of Sefer Shmuel Bet is composed of four chapters, twenty one through twenty four. It might be said of these four chapters that they do not necessarily follow in chronological order to the earlier material, as we will see. In all probability, the reason why they are placed at the end of Sefer is to serve as some sort of a conclusion, a retrospect, a perspective on David's reign and David as a personality. The final four chapters highlight features of David that perhaps were not emphasized earlier in the narrative, but here, as the book reaches its conclusion, they are highlighted again. Modern scholars have recognized that the final four chapters of the book, or more correctly, the content of these final chapters form some sort of a chiastic structure. A chai is a Greek letter that looks like the English letter X, and in literary terms, a chiastic structure means where there are a number of literary elements, such that the first element lines up with the last, the second with the second last, the third with the third last, etc., and where some sort of a core, central idea lies in the middle. And that's exactly what we have here. Chapter 21 begins with a calamitous drought and famine that happens during David's reign. It is paralleled by the events of chapter 24, a calamitous plague that happens during David's reign. Chapter 21 is followed up at the end with a report of David and his men and their triumphs against the Philistines, especially the Philistine giants. It is paralleled by chapter 23, which is a list of David's mighty men and their exploits. And finally, chapter 22, David's Song of Triumph is followed by David's Last Words, those two actually forming the core texts around which the rest of the material is arranged. As we will see, some of the events in these four chapters are difficult to interpret, and the commentaries have struggled with understanding some of the issues. Chapter 21 begins with the report that there was a famine in the days of David, that is to say, during his reign, an indeterminate point during his reign, not necessarily after the events of the Avshalom Rebellion. And the famine lasted for three years, one year after the next. David sought God's presence. A famine in the Hebrew Bible is always associated with divine displeasure. And certainly three continuous years of famine is a sure indication that God is upset. When David inquires of God, God responds, El Sha'ul, verse number one, ve'al bet ha-damim, concerning Sha'ul and the house of blood for he had killed the Gibeonites, the Giv'onim. David calls the Giv'onim, he summons them, and the text reports that in fact the Gibeonites were not people of Israel, they were not the tribes of Israel, but rather they were Amorites, that is to say Canaanites, and the people of Israel had sworn to them a pledge Shaul, on the other hand, sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Yehuda. So these references require some sort of additional material to make sense of. When the people entered the land in the book of Joshua, they were commanded very forcefully to destroy the Canaanites. And among the Canaanite tribes, there was one tribe called the Givonim, the Gibeonites, that disguised themselves as coming from far off and not being Canaanite in origin. And in so doing, they secured a pledge from the people of Israel that they would not be harmed, but would be treated as allies. The pledge was secured using duplicity. That is to say that the Givonim pretended that they were not Canaanite. But nevertheless, even though the people of Israel, or the elders more correctly, swore a pledge to the Givonim not to harm them, even though they were deceived in order to do so, nevertheless, in order not to desecrate the name of God, the pledge was understood to be in force and the Givonim remained Part of the people of Israel for hundreds of years. Now it was reported, and this is the first time we've heard of this, that Shaul sought to destroy the Givonim because of his zeal for the people of Israel and Yehuda. Presumably, Shaul argued, since the pledge had been extended by Joshua and the elders after they had been deceived, it therefore had no standing. But in fact, since it was a pledge made in God's name, it could not be abrogated. That would have been a desecration of his name. So effectively, the text is reporting now, the famine was a result of Shaul's attempts to destroy the Givonim. And therefore, David summons the Givonim and asks them what they might demand such that the drought could come to an end. What shall I do for you, David says to the Givonim. How shall I atone such that you bless the possession of God? The Givonim responded, we have no desire for silver or gold. Concerning Shaul and his household, we do not desire to kill any person in Israel. And in this veiled statement, what they are really saying is, we will not accept ransom. Silver and gold will not atone for what Shaul has done. The killing of other Israelites will not atone for what Shaul has done. There is only one thing that will atone for what Shaul has done, say the Givonim, for he destroyed us from the entire borders of Israel. Verse number 6 spells out their demand. Give us seven of his descendants, such that we might impale them before God in Giv'at Sha'ul, his city. Sha'ul, who was the chosen of God. And the king says, David says, I will turn them over. Effectively, the givonim say, there's only one thing which is going to satisfy us, and that is that we can execute vicarious punishment by executing seven of Shaul's descendants. Of course, the number seven in Hebrew, shiva, recalls the word Shivua or oath, as if to say Shaul abrogated the oath, and therefore seven of his descendants must be put to death ritually to atone for his crime. So even as David has no recourse but to turn over these hapless victims, the text reports in verse number 7 that David had compassion concerning Mephiboshet, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shaul, that is to say Mephiboshet, the grandson of Shaul, because David had made an oath in God's name between himself and Yonatan, that he would preserve his descendants. So he refuses to turn over Mephiboshet. And of course, the contrast is glaring. Even as Shaul abrogated the oath, David will maintain the oath to Mephiboshet. So other victims are turned over. The two sons of Ritzpah, the daughter of Ayah, who was Shaul's concubine, their names being Armoni and Mephiboshet, but not the same as Mephiboshet, the son of Jonathan, And the five sons, the five children of Michal Batshaul, Shaul, whom she had born to Adriel, the son of Barzillai of Michola. So those are the seven. The five children of Michal, or perhaps Merav, the two children of Ritzpah, but not Mifiboshet, the son of Yonatan. They are given over to the Givonim, and the Givonim promptly impale them on the mountain before God, all seven of them dying together, put to death at the beginning of the barley harvest. Ritzpabat Aya, whose two children are among the victims, takes a sackcloth, And spreads it upon the rock for shelter such that she might guard the bodies from being consumed by birds of prey or wild animals. And this continues throughout the dry season right through until the beginning of the rainy season. When David hears what she has done, he intervenes. And now the bones of Shaul and Yonatan are gathered from Yavesh Gilad, where they had been hurriedly buried at the very end of the first book of Samuel by the people of Yavesh Gilad who rescued them from the wall of Beit She'an where the Philistines had strung them up. So those bones, Shaul's bones and Yonatan's bones, are relocated from Yavesh Gilad, and they are joined together with the bones, with the remains of the impaled victims. And all of them are brought together in verse number 14 to finally be buried in the tomb of Kish, the father of Shaul. And God relented afterwards and the rains began to fall. So effectively, what started out as a terrible story of vengeance on the part of the Givonim, concludes with a report of, the, of Shaul and Yonatan and the other descendants of Shaul now being given a proper burial in their family sepulchre. As if to say, The story of Sha'ul and his dynasty finally comes to rest at the end of this harrowing tale. So we might ask, what does this demonstrate about David? Why is this episode included as some sort of a retrospect of David and his reign? And the answer is very clear. This story highlights that in spite of the fact that of all the descendants of Shaul, it was none other than Miphiboshet, the son of Yonatan, that posed the greatest threat to his rule, to his dynasty. If you remember what Siva had reported at the time that David fled Jerusalem, before Avshalom's onslaught, in chapter 16. Siva said it wasn't true necessarily, but at least it was plausible that Mephibosh had stayed behind because he imagined that the kingship would be restored to him now that David had been expelled. Whether or not it was true is not the point. What is the point was that it was plausible. Mephiboshet, in fact, represented the greatest threat to, to David's dynasty, to David's continued rule. The greatest threat from the house of Sheol, that is. And that is precisely the one whom David spares from death. And why? Because he made a pledge. And David keeps his pledge to Yonatan no matter what. So what we see from this episode very clearly is that David is true to his word, and that's why it is recorded here. And of course as well that this represents some sort of a fitting, comforting conclusion to the sad tale of Shaul's demise. Shaul had been defeated on the slopes of Gilboa at the end of Shmuel Aleph, His body had never received a proper burial as befits the first king of Israel, and David now undertakes that in the aftermath of this event. So a fitting conclusion to the story of Shaul's death, and also an indication once again that even as David succeeded Shaul as king of Israel, he was not a usurper or a rebel. And he showed deference to the dead king and ensured that in the end, his bones were properly buried with his ancestors. And that's the end of the first part of chapter 21. The second part, the last part of chapter 21, describes four separate battles between David's men and the Philistines. These are recorded as very, very short little descriptions. And what happens in all of these moments is that Philistine giants are defeated by David's warriors. In the first short episode, Yishbi, who was one of the Philistine giants, tried to strike down David. And Avishai ben Siruyah struck the Philistine and killed him, such that David was spared. In the next battle, Sibachai kills Saf, who was another Philistine giant. And in the third, Elchanan ben Yaareh or Gim strikes down Goliath of Gat. And in the fourth battle, Madon or Ishmadon is struck down by Yonatan ben Shimah David's nephew. These four giants were born to the Rafa, and they fell by the hands of David and his servants, his followers. So effectively, this second little piece of text recalls events that happened earlier in David's reign, because David fought the Philistines when he first became king and defeated them. So clearly this material belongs chronologically to an earlier period in David's life. But here it is recorded once again in some sort of a retrospective function, i.e., what does this highlight about David as the king of Israel? Number one, David was the first to remove the Philistine threat from the Israelite tribes completely. And that was one of his greatest accomplishments. Remember that the Philistines threatened the tribes of Israel for hundreds of years before David's ascent to the throne. So it's absolutely essential to recall, to emphasize, that one of David's greatest accomplishments was to throw off the Philistine yoke and face down the Philistine menace. And this David does admirably through the loyal efforts of his men. David's fighters are fiercely loyal. David's warriors are courageous. And they will fight the Philistine giants and defeat them. So it's not only a story about David and David's accomplishments, but mostly these little vignettes are about David's men who fight so valiantly to defeat the Philistines. So these are the first two stories, chapter 21 that is, one about the Givonim, David who keeps his pledge, David who shows deference to the house of Shaul, and the second about the Philistine giants, David, who is courageous, David, who is a warrior, David, who is surrounded by fighters that risk their lives in order to bring triumph. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Pardis Institute of Jewish Studies in partnership with the Korn Podcast Network. If you like what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.